The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Trump has already violated Judge Arthur Engeron's gag order, and if Engeron actually was contemplating finding him in contempt and putting him in jail for 30 days, he should damn well do it and do it now. And if he wasn't, he ought to now expand the gag order and specify that if Trump breaks it again, he will spend a month behind bars. This is not complicated. It only takes four steps. One. Monday, the judge warned Trump's lawyers that if he didn't lay off the attacks, he would impose a gag order. Two, Tuesday, a troll account on Twitter attacked Angeron's court clerk because she once took a selfie with Senator Chuck Schumer. Somebody showed it to Trump. He took the photo and lied that the clerk was Schumer's girlfriend and that she was running the trial. Thus, the case had to be immediately dismissed. Three, Within hours of that, Engeron ordered Trump's post to be deleted. He gagged Trump and forbade him from, quote, posting, emailing, or speaking publicly about any members of my staff and added, failure to abide by this order will result in serious sanctions. And four, yesterday, Trump posted, quote, the judge fraudulently reduced the value of Mar-a-Lago and other assets in order to make their fake case more viable. And during the lunch break, Trump said of Engeron, he's a Democrat judge. He has no choice. He's run by the Democrats, thus accusing the judge both of fraud and of political corruption. The gag order precludes Trump from public comments about, quote, any members of my staff, unquote. And it is not twisting logic nor semantics too strongly to note that the judge would count as a member of his own staff. So step five, quite clearly, is this judge imposing those serious sanctions by statutes, 
they could be contempt of court. And under New York state law, Article 19, Section 751, contempt of court is punishable by... I regret to tell you capital punishment does not apply under Article 19, Section 751. It's punishable by fine, not exceeding $1,000, or imprisonment for not more than 30 days, or both, at the discretion of the judge. And if Judge Engeron really wants to make the argument that he is not a member of his own staff, he would therefore need to broaden the gag order immediately because you or I or Hunter Biden or Joe Biden, or Jesus Christ fresh off the cross would have already amassed a thousand 30-day sentences for the kind of contemptuous shit Donald Trump has gotten away with, abusing and degrading and insulting and harassing and threatening and undermining and sabotaging and lying about our judicial system. And I am the last person on this planet to give any judicial system carte blanche over anyone or anything, but it is time that our judicial system gets off its ass and puts this narcissistic, delusional, destructive, deranged, quasi-human behind bars so he can get busy rotting behind them and then going directly to hell. And I would love to see him convicted for the crimes for which he's been indicted by Jack Smith in Washington and Florida and by Fonnie Willis in Georgia and by Letitia James here in New York. But frankly, as long as it is lawful, I do not care if Trump spends the rest of his life in prison only because he insulted Judge Arthur Engeron's justifiably anonymous courtroom clerk and Judge Engeron himself. Any port in a storm. Enough break Trump in half. The law tells you to and leave the metaphorical carcass to figuratively decompose in the gutter. Lock the bastard up. By the way, these are two clips from Trump's swirling murderous, insane rages outside the courtroom. The first, in which he made the comment about Angeron, which I quoted earlier. The second, in which he attacks the attorney general in the most egregious way yet. And by the way, in the video accompanying these audio clips, Trump is lighted exactly the way they lighted Norma Desmond in the last scene of the movie Sunset Boulevard. The judge already knows what he's going to do. He's a Democrat judge. In all fairness to him, he has no choice. He has no choice. He's run by the Democrats and he gets sued by a political animal. Trump did not pick political animal with his verbal emphasis on the word animal by accident. Most assuredly, the attorney general is not covered by the judge's gag order. He may be a part of his own staff. She most certainly is not. So Trump will get away with calling her an animal with the word political added as prefix because it reduces the grotesqueness and the racism of him calling a black woman a, quote, animal. It reduces it. It dials it back to a common political cliche. But in light of the brutality of that and Trump's constant racism, Judge Engeron should expand that gag order a second time and hereafter include Letitia James and her staff, too. Lock him up.
By the way, Trump has also now lied twice about his presence at the New York trial, and not just by his continuing fabrication that he has been denied a jury trial. He has been denied a jury trial because he denied himself professional legal representation. They literally checked the box saying no jury. Trump literally checked the box saying, I'm not going to pay a lot for this lawyer. Trump has done something else. He's now done the murder your parents, demand pity because you're an orphan quick step. He told the media that though he is not expected to testify for weeks, yet he is at the trial in New York because he was, quote, stuck here as if he had been compelled to attend. This was a lie so egregious that even a reporter actually noticed it and pushed back and said, but you don't have to be here. And he immediately changed his story and said he was there, quote, because I want to point out to the press how corrupt it is. And if this real-time demonstration of the limitless volume that the fountain of verbal diarrhea that is Donald Trump's brain can handle, if that were not enough, he promptly reportedly left the court to fly back to Florida even though he's stuck in New York, compelled, forced by the Democratic judge who's guilty of fraud, ever the martyr, can't leave, can't get back to work, can't get back to the campaign trail, can't... Where is he? Oh, he left for Florida. Happily, in so doing, Trump may have committed contempt in a second court. He was supposed to sit for his deposition two days ago in his own suit against his former fixer, Michael Cohen, in South Florida... But he told the judge there a week ago that he had to postpone the deposition because he was going to spend at least the first week of the New York fraud trial in that courtroom. According to Cohen's lawyer's motion to the Florida court, Trump, quote, also stated that because of the trial, he would be unavailable any business day between October 2, 2023 and the end of his trial. Thus, there is the gathering and looming evidence that Trump is in so many courtrooms because of so many lawsuits and so many criminal indictments that his court appearances and his lies about them are now crashing into each other. And once again, a week from Monday, the hearing in Judge Chutkin's courtroom about Jack Smith's request for a gag order and the pile of other outside threats and other outside abuses by Trump of other outside judges and other outside prosecutors and other outside key players, it just keeps getting higher and higher and more and more damning. And honest to God, after listening to eight years of this public crap from him and privately listening to 40 years of it as of this December 15th, as somebody who met him that long ago, the thought that we might still have a chance to save democracy from him is obviously first on my list of prayers. But second place does not belong to punishing Trump or avenging ourselves against him. That's third. The second best thing about all this would be to see him hamstrung and pinioned by a series of gag orders and to know that metaphorically and literally America will finally make Donald Trump shut the F up. And speaking of dreams potentially coming true, if you have missed this, the other guy I was saying was nuts, at least 10 years before everybody else noticed, is coming apart at the seams in public 
and fast, and it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. You will recall Rudy Giuliani. He's being sued by his most loyal lapdog lawyer, Robert Costello, and Costello's partners for nearly a million and a half dollars in unpaid legal fees. But you may not have heard that last week one of Giuliani's local attorneys in Georgia, David Wolf, told the court a week ago today he is no longer one of Giuliani's local attorneys in Georgia, and he offered no explanation for that. But wait, there's more. Tuesday night, Brian Tevis told the Georgia judge he is also withdrawing from representing Rudy. So Giuliani's legal team in the Fonnie Willis case is now himself. And if anybody in this country could bring that most cliched of cliches to brilliant life, it's Rudy Giuliani. A man who is his own lawyer has a fool for a client. And apparently he has a drunk for a client as well. Yesterday, the New York Times published 3,109 devastating words over Maggie Haberman's byline and under the headline, Giuliani's drinking long a fraught subject has Trump prosecutors attention. Of those 3,109 words, 18 of them are drinking, five of them are drunk, and four of them are problem. Yet the real relevance of the piece is that part about Trump prosecutors. The Times writes that Jack Smith's office and its members, quote, have shown an interest in the drinking habits of Mr. Giuliani. They've questioned witnesses about Mr. Giuliani's alcohol consumption as he was advising Mr. Trump, including on election night. Mr. Smith's investigators have also asked about Mr. Trump's level of awareness of his lawyer's drinking as they worked to overturn the election. The answers to those prompts could complicate any efforts by Mr. Trump's team to lean on a so-called advice of counsel defense. If such guidance came from someone whom Mr. Trump knew to be compromised by alcohol, especially when many others told Mr. Trump definitively that he had lost, his argument could weaken. Several people at the White House on election night, the evening when Mr. Giuliani urged Mr. Trump to declare victory despite the results, have said that the former mayor appeared to be drunk, slurring and carrying an odor of alcohol. Quote, the mayor was definitely intoxicated, Jason Miller said. Whew. The Times was also good enough to remind us that Giuliani first claimed, quote, they stole that election, unquote, in 1989, when he lost to David Dinkins, the first time he ran for mayor of New York City. The Times notes that he started drinking heavily after he went from the front runner in the race for the 2008 Republican presidential nomination to the guy who won exactly one delegate. I'll note again that Giuliani still believes his demise in that race was caused by the man who told America that everything Giuliani said at the time was, quote, a noun, a verb, and 9-11. And of course, that man was Joe Biden explains everything there. The Times quotes a Giuliani biographer recounting the number of times Giuliani has been, quote, literally falling down drunk and how he would lapse then into Islamophobia or just lapse into collisions with walls and other objects. 
I will let the Times retain the rest of its own thunder, and I will leave you the option of whether or not you want to hear any more of this. But let's put it this way. If Rudy Giuliani still had a reputation, the Times piece would have just destroyed it. And again, the real import of what the Times produced yesterday is not about Giuliani, but about how his drinking may become part of the prosecution of Donald Trump, because apparently you cannot use an advice of counsel defense if your counsel is so drunk he could be considered at risk for spontaneous combustion. Okay, I'll put away the buttons with the music attached to them. Also of interest here, a major new, quote, news, unquote, website has turned to artificial intelligence to assess the reliability and the honesty of news coverage, and it has determined that the least reliable stories about Kevin McCarthy, the partisan clickbait about Kevin McCarthy, were produced by the New York Times and the BBC. Ah, but the most reliable stories about McCarthy were produced by the New York Post and Breitbart. And yes, there is a good chance that this artificial intelligence is actually just Tucker Carlson stuffed inside a computer costume. That's next. This is... If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. 
someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. countdown the anniversary is day after tomorrow saturday night 11 15 p.m eastern the first time i actually went on radio where there were people listening and a sponsor ever wanted to hear the 16 year old version of me stand by first time for the daily roundup of the miscreants morons and dunning-kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world the bronze The Institute of Economic Affairs, IEA, which proclaims itself to be Britain's original free market think tank. Actually, they're misogynistic fascists. They have earned international condemnation after conducting a live panel called The Future of Journalism. And the people in it are all British media types or fringe members of the government, so you will not recognize the names. But the panelists on The Future of Journalism were... Sir John Whittingdale, Owen Meredith, Matthew Lesh, Matt Warman, Matthew Sinclair, and David Matthew. As one wag noted, the future of journalism is for Matthews, but no women. As another one observed, maybe they'll invent journalism for girls someday. Future of journalism, my... The runner-up, Jonathan Turley, or as my spell check continually tries to rename him across all my devices, Jonathan Turkey. When I have posited here that the one-time countdown regular and constitutional interpreter is being blackmailed, it is not just that he's gone from a liberal-leaning umpire with a pretty fair strike zone to a lunatic that only Fox News and the House Committee to Obstruct Justice could respect. It's also little things like this. He's posted a piece slamming the palace coup against Kevin McCarthy by writing that a comedian, quote, once said chaos in the middle of chaos isn't funny, but chaos in the midst of order is. He then attributed that quote to Stephen Martin. Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N. Since the observation was actually made by Steve Martin, one assumes that's who Turley meant. But something is really wrong with John Turley. Nobody but nobody has called Steve Martin Stephen. I don't think even his parents called him Stephen. Steve Martin's first full name is Stephen with a PH. But our winners, The Messenger, this weird Trojan horse site that claims to be a cutting edge venue for, quote, balanced, objective, nonpartisan journalism, but is in fact just another right wing propaganda outlet that mixed in the added crime of clickbait. Most of the media world figured the messenger out pretty quickly, but eyebrows were still raised when it announced that it had made a deal with an artificial intelligence company called Seeker. Seeker claims to be able to use AI to evaluate the reliability and fairness of reporting, quote, 
By applying the same standards of journalism universally accepted by the responsible free press, it spots instances of clickbait, title exaggeration, subjectivity, and personal attacks, the absence of a byline, inferior sourcing and attribution, and whether website ownership information is transparent and credible. It will generate a list, seeker will, of which news organizations have published, quote, reliable stories on a given topic and which ones have published unreliable ones. Okay, so Joshua Benton of the Neiman Media Lab decided to give the Messenger-Seeker partnership a spin to see which news outlets its AI had determined had come in very high and very low on the Seeker reliability scale on stories about the ouster of Kevin McCarthy. The very low, unreliable stories, they were the ones produced by ABC, BBC, NBC, Bloomberg, LA Times, Politico, Guardian, The Atlantic, Daily Beast, Time, and The New York Times. The very high, most reliable stories, they were the ones produced by Zero Hedge, by Glenn Beck's The Blaze, by MontanaRightNow.com, by The Washington Times, The Daily Mail of London, OAN Network, Breitbart and the New York Post. What? No love for the Daily Stormer? The new crap site, The Messenger, where they've already managed to hire new right-wing robot overlords. Today's worst persons in the world! If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market. 
as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I was 16 years old. I was in my seventh or eighth week at Cornell University and in my second week or so of training at the student-owned radio station, WVBR-FM, and they all played me. They all had a big joke on Keith's expense. The premise of that evening of October 7th, 1975, was that I was going to shadow a senior sportscaster named Gary Davis, and I would sit with him in Studio B at 227 Linden Avenue during his sportscast, and he would give me one, maybe two stories that I would read so that my first real broadcast would not be quite so traumatic. It was all a lie. It was a damned lie. I was standing at the edges of the newsroom, periodically summoning the courage to look at the copy continually and furiously and noisily disgorging itself from the United Press International Teletype Machine, wondering where this Gary Davis guy was when somebody I did not know and they were all somebody I did not know there that night, came over and asked, you, Keith? And I nodded. Phone for you. Hey, kid, it's Jerry Goldberg. Jerry was the sports director of the commercial radio station run by Cornell students. He sounded exactly that laconic. He was one of the 10 seniors on the staff. I was one of the two freshmen. Listen, he said, find the newscaster, Kathy, and get her to give you all the sports stories from the UPI wire and start picking which ones you're going to do at 11.15. Gary Davis will be there around uh, quarter to 11. Now, I know I told you that Gary was going to do the sportscast and you were only going to do a story or two, but that was just because I didn't want you to get all nervous. So I lied. It was all a lie, a damned lie. I didn't want you to get all nervous. I wondered what Jerry Goldberg thought I would be now as the clock swept towards 10 p.m. and I had about 75 minutes to get the wire copy I had not seen from the newscaster I had not met, turn it into a five-minute sportscast in a manner I did not know, find the studio, the whereabouts of which I did not know, with the help of a guy named Gary Davis whom I would not recognize when he came in. Oh, and although my voice was pretty deep and I had been on my high school's radio station with my mentor, Chris Berman, I was still only 16 and I was the youngest of the 20,000 or so students at Cornell University right that night. And my voice was still periodically breaking and it would continue to periodically break through my senior year, often with disastrous and hilarious consequences. And now I had been, though we did not use that term then, played. It was a lie, a damned lie. I was prepared to watch, to learn, to make a cameo even, maybe 30, maybe 45 seconds of terror, reading something this guy Davis had selected for me. Instead, I was at the deep end of the pool. This newscast that the sportscast was part of, late edition, had listeners. And not just commercials, it had a sponsor. The sponsor was a prominent local insurance agency, the Robert S. Boothroyd Agency, your protection, 
is their profession. This was a hybrid, this WVBR. It was training station for students, but it was also one of the eight experimental licenses granted by the FCC in the 1930s. We were not public radio. We were not non-commercial. We sold, produced, and ran advertising. Before I was done there, I did the local commercials for the J.C. Penny department stores. Anyway, I remember little of the rest of that night. Gary Davis finally showed up, said I'd made good story selections. Another veteran sportscaster showed up, and they escorted me into the studio, exactly like I'd seen them escort every prisoner down every final mile in every prison movie. The room was so quiet that I could literally hear the second hand moving on the big clock. I think I had an out-of-body experience. I think I could see myself from about the perspective of that big clock up on the wall. I know for certain that Gary Davis had encouraged me to place one arm around the microphone stand and hold the ten small pieces of canary yellow wire copy with the thumb and forefinger of both hands, so that when I was finished reading the first page, only then did it occur to me that I had to move my hands, which were frozen with fright, remove the top page out of that stack of ten pages, not drop the other ones, and not knock the microphone over. And while I was thinking of this, a red light went on, and... Late edition sports. Ken Griffey has scored the go-ahead run on a sacrifice fly in the top of the 10th inning to give Cincinnati a 4-3 win over Pittsburgh. A red victory would clinch the National League pennant tonight. Pete Rose hit a two-run homer in the 8th inning off Pirates starter John Candelaria. Candelaria, a rookie, had allowed only one hit and struck out 14 through seven innings. I mentioned some names that any fan would recognize even now. Ken Griffey, Pete Rose, Joe Morgan, Tom Seaver, Terry Bradshaw. But the first non-baseball story was about last-ditch efforts to save the World Football League. I did not write a word of it except my own name at the beginning and the end. And I was so scared that when it came to my own name, I mispronounced it. Twice. Rambling and Wittenberg colleges remain the top small college football teams in the nation in the latest NCAA poll. That's late edition sports. I'm Keith Olbermann. Good night. Yes, Olbermann. That's what it said on the paper. If it had said, I'm Keith Green Cheese, I would have said, I'm Keith Green Cheese. Now, obviously, I still have this tape, but basically, it's 16 year old Keith whispers like that for nearly five minutes. The guy in the next dorm room was good enough to record it to me or for me, Jeff Holling said. I'm not going to subject you to it here, but since I have it, I will play the whole thing at the end of this program, literally after the credits. I mean, why not? What amazes me in retrospect is that nearly four years and certainly 2,000 sportscasts later, on July 10th, 1979, I fell victim to the exact same trick again. When I got my first full-time job at United Press International's radio network in 1979, my boss, Sam Rosen, the one who still does the New York Rangers hockey games on TV, told me to come in at 5 a.m. one morning to watch him do the morning shift. I sat in the studio as he barked out the sportscasts at 6.45 and 7.45 and 8.45, and as soon as he signed off with, around the sports desk of United Press International, I'm Sam Rosen. He looked at me and said, you got it? I sure hope you do, because you're doing the 945. It was all a lie, another damned lie. Back at my college station, one of my former trainees doing the midday news shift, who had had no idea I had even gotten the job at UPI, went over to check the wire machine and saw an advisory from UPI Audio, which read, Keith Olbermann will do the 945 AM sportscast today. 
she let out a scream. And so that ancient artifact, that piece of yellow wire copy printed out on the same machine from which I pulled the stories from my first sportscast four years before, still exists, framed on my wall. It was yellow when it was new, so you can't really say it's yellowed with age. I may have yellowed with age. UPI is basically gone now. WVBR is still going strong, and I'm proud to say the Olbermann Cornelius Studios in Ithaca, New York. And in an oddity that I still enjoy, my college debut was on 10-7, and my network debut was on 7-10. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Countdown has come to you from the Vin Scully Studios at the Olbermann Broadcasting Empire in New York. The music you've heard was, for the most part, arranged, produced, and performed by Countdown Musical Directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. Brian Ray handled the guitars, bass, and drums. John Philip Chanel did the orchestration and the keyboards, and it was all produced by TKO Brothers. Other music, including other Beethoven tunes, arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is courtesy of ESPN Inc., and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis. We call it the Olderman theme from ESPN2. Our satirical and pithy musical comments are by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Richard Lewis, and everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 1,003rd day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Convict him now while we still can. The next scheduled Countdown is tomorrow. Bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Late edition sports. Ken Griffey has scored the go-ahead run on a sacrifice fly in the top of the 10th inning to give Cincinnati a 4-3 lead over Pittsburgh. A red victory would clinch the National League pennant tonight. Pete Rose hit a two-run homer in the 8th inning off Pirates starter John Candelaria. Candelaria, a rookie, had allowed only one hit and struck out 14 through seven innings. Cincinnati has just added another run in the 10th. The score now stands Cincinnati 5, Pittsburgh 3. Dick Drago came on in the 8th inning to get an inning-inning double play to secure the Boston Red Sox their first American League pennant since 1967. Oakland scored two runs in the bottom of the 8th, but Drago, relieving starter Rick Wise, induced Joe Rudy to hit into a double play with two men on. The Red Sox 5, Oakland 3. The Red Sox go to the World Series. Joe Morgan of Cincinnati and Tom Seaver of the New York Mets have been voted National League Player and Pitcher of the Year in a poll of National League players by the Sporting News. It's the third such honor for Seaver, who was Pitcher of the Year in 1969 and 1973. He led the league this season with 22 victories and with strikeouts with 243. Morgan, a second baseman, was so honored for the first time. He batted 327 with 17 home runs, 94 runs batted in, and 67 stolen bases. Turning to football... Chris Hemeter says the World Football League will begin a national marketing program in an effort to boost sagging attendance figures in the 10 franchise cities. Hemeter says, quote, we're going to try something new. Up until this point, the ultimate responsibility for attendance has been at the franchise level. The league will now act as a coordinator, unquote. Hemeter met yesterday with John Bassett, the owner of the Memphis Southman, and John Basacco, owner of the Philadelphia Bell. Hemeter says attendance is, quote, the most challenging question in our minds, unquote. 
Quarterback Joe Gilliam is listed as a doubtful starter for Pittsburgh's game on Sunday against Denver, but Terry Bradshaw feels he'll be able to throw again by then. Both quarterbacks were injured in Sunday's victory over Cleveland. Bradshaw received a deep cut on his right hand while Gilliam dislocated the index finger on his throwing hand. Bradshaw worked out for 15 minutes today, admitted there was a little pain, but he said he'll be able to hold the ball normally with a smaller bandage. Gilliam and Bradshaw are ranked as the AFC's number two and three passers behind Cincinnati's Ken Anderson. Also in football, defensive back Ken Stone of the Washington Redskins underwent knee surgery today for torn ligaments. The club's physician says it'll be at least six weeks before the fourth-year pro from Vanderbilt will be able to run again. On the eve of the new season, the NHL Players Association and the club owners agreed on a new five-year collective bargaining agreement. The contract gives a team the right to gain compensation for a player who plays out his option and signs with another club. The same regulation, called the Rizal Rule in the NFL, has been the major stumbling block to a labor settlement in pro football. Third period goals by Colin Campbell and Sil Apps gave the Pittsburgh Penguins a 4-2 victory over the Washington Capitals tonight in the opening game of the National Hockey League season. Campbell's 35-foot slap shot snapped a 2-2 tie at the 5:41 mark of the final period, and Apps clinched the triumph with his go- with its tally with 84 seconds left. Rookie goalie Gord Laxton went the distance for Pittsburgh to collect his first NHL victory. The United States is expected to dominate the track and field program at the Pan American Games in Mexico City next week, despite a number of notable absentees. Among the headliners skipping the event are Olympic marathon champion Frank Shorter and world record holders Steve Williams, Rick Walhuter, Dwight Stones, Dave Roberts, and Al Feuerbach. The NCAA announced today it will send eight of America's top college golfers to Tokyo later this year to compete against Japan's best collegians. Rambling and Wittenberg colleges remain the top small college football teams in the nation in the latest NCAA poll. That's Late Edition Sports. I'm Keith Olbermann. Good night. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.